Welcome to Critical Matters, a sound podcast covering a broad range of topics related to the practice of intensive care medicine. Sound provides comprehensive critical care programs to hospitals across the country. To learn more about our programs and career opportunities, visit www.soundphysicians.com. And now, your host, Dr. Sergio Zanotti. One in five U.S. residents receive ICU care at the end of life. More than a quarter of Medicare dollars are spent on patients during the last year of life. These staggering statistics illustrate that death in the ICU is common. Unfortunately, the available literature seems to indicate that we are doing a poor job and there's ample opportunity to provide our patients and families significantly more humane care at the end of their lives. In other words, provide our patients a good death. In today's episode of Critical Matters, we will discuss end of life of care in the ICU. We are extremely honored and lucky to have Dr. B.J. Miller as our guest. Dr. Miller is a palliative care physician at the University of California, San Francisco, and a former executive director of Sen Hospice Project. He is a powerful advocate for the role of our senses, community, and presence in delivering palliative care. He's also a true champion in promoting a new perspective on living with death. His TED Talk, What Really Matters at the End of Life, has generated over 9 million views. BJ, welcome to Critical Matters. Thank you, Sergio. Nice to be here. So I think we can start with uh, the big question which really applies not only to physicians, but I'll ask it from the intensivist perspective, but why is it so hard for physicians and intensivists to talk about death? Well, you know, that's a, you're right, that's a big question. And I think there are a number of reasons. I mean, we can start with the conventional answers, which is really of any stripe, but particularly interventionalists and intensivists and those doing sort of procedures and those who are geared towards sort of uh, uh, f- fixing a problem, um, but no matter, even if you're going into geriatrics, I think the bottom line is that medical education, uh, the, the traditions of medical education since the you know Flexner report in the early 20th century, we've, you know, medical education has not changed much, and uh, so the bottom line there is we just don't get trained. We don't get trained very well in how to communicate hard issues. We don't get trained really at all in in terms of how to sit with suffering that we can't fix. Um, So that's the conventional answer, is that we just don't, it's just not part of our training and and not really part of the ethos of medicine, which for the last 150 years or so has pretty much been hell-bent on sort of the scientific method, rooting out disease and curing disease at all costs. Um, so you put those together, and that means that we're, we as an industry are not very well suited to when our cures don't work. Um, so that's one answer. Um, and I think, this, I think it's extra hard in the uh, ICU setting and among the workforce in the intensive care kind of setting because, now this is me guessing, um, but because that's where it's sort of the least natural environment in healthcare. It's the most, like, you're basically, you've created an entirely artificial uh, experience, yeah, internal experience in a hospital, where where nature, where you're really hell-bent on intervening on a natural course. And and, and all the momentum that goes into, into practicing medicine and the experience of medicine, all that 
all that those big wheels get turning and they get turning real hard and real fast in the ICU. And so it's just, it, it, death is the most, it's, it's just even more anathema in the ICU. The idea that we can intervene and fix everything is, is even more the case in the ICU, et cetera. So it's sort of like the ICU is the extreme version of the rest of medicine. And, and in this sense, super removed from the natural flow of life. And the natural flow of life is where death hangs out. And I think that with education, one of the things that strikes me is that uh, in my fellowship days, we didn't recognize maybe how important this is. Now with the growth of palliative care, supportive medicine, we are recognizing the importance, but to some extent we've abdicated that responsibility to our colleagues in your field. And I, now I feel that a lot of our mm-hmm. younger doctors get no experience, no exposure to this. And that is also, I think, a, a growing mm-hmm. problem. Oh, you're so right on that, Sergio. This is one of the sort of, you know, <laughs> like, it's sort of like discussing the, cl- you know, the environment and climate. It's sort of like, we have to realize that in, in medicine and in healthcare, that there's a, there's a, there's a downside to all of our progress you know that we're we keep inventing new cures new fixes new technologies that can have the promise to extend life but that just gets us farther and farther afield from what happens when those things don't work so that's a preamble to say well gosh in my time in practicing medicine the last 15 years it's been really heartening to see and the, the, the progress in this case is that palliative care has grown, has become more and more accepted, more and more embraced and and sought after. So that's a success, right? (laughs) On some level, certainly from my field's point of view, that's a success. Now, okay, the fallout, the downside is that I, I meet a lot of younger docs, hospitalists and intensivists who are totally down with palliative care, you know, totally accept the idea of palliative care, the importance of it, et cetera. But then they say, well, now, you know, I love palliative care. I just, I call the palliative care guys when someone's suffering or when someone's dying. And so to your point, Sergio, even a really sensitized, well-meaning intensivist, then we'll end up outsourcing this very important piece of the puzzle. And then therefore having less and less experience themselves dealing with the, the, the struggle at the end of life. Absolutely. And I think that what we'll try to touch on throughout the conversation today is how to maximize the team effort. And uh, some some circumstances yeah. might prevent you from having a palliative care colleague, but uh, also we'll talk a little bit later of how we can uh, best integrate them into the ICU team to provide the greatest benefit for our patients. Mm-hmm. I, I do think yeah. that, that words matter a lot uh, uh, in terms of the meaning that they carry. And one of the things that I find, uh, BJ, when we talk about this whole end of life topic, which includes a lot of terms, is that many people use words interchangeably that don't mean the same thing. And many times because of Mm. that, there are tremendous misconceptions. And you see this at all levels when you're talking with families, when you're talking with your team, when you're trying to convince maybe a CT surgeon to involve palliative care. Uh, So what I would like to do in the next uh, block is maybe give you a couple of words that you can maybe contrast and better define for us in, in some different groups. Would that be okay? That sounds great. Yep. So the first pair is code status versus goals of care. Mm-hmm. 
Right. Really important distinction, right? So uh, code status is a very specific, it's a, it's a, a piece of the sort of, or an outcome of goals of care conversations. It's a, it's a piece of the puzzle. Um, but I think what ends up happening, I've heard too, I've seen it too often, is that someone that, that you're treated one way in the hospital if you're full code and you're treated another way if you're DNR. And it really, that code status comment really is, should be treated as a very narrow piece of the puzzle. It is simply what to do when that patient is actually in the throes of dying, you know. It shouldn't have anything to do with the amount of care and attention that patient receives or the concern they receive, how much, uh, how invested we physicians are in their care. It only means what do we, code, code says only means how are we going to respond at that moment when they begin to die. That's it. Whereas yeah, goals of that, care. Yeah, go ahead. Sorry. Yep. No, go on. No, I was going to say that it only applies when the heart stops, right? <laughs> Which is yes. extremely, extremely narrow. Yes, that's right. And and you really are, and right, and, and in that vein, you're, 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 you're the, the, the sort of the categories within uh, code status are very fixed and very like, look, are you going to do, essentially, I mean, you can parse intubation from chest compressions from you know whatever you can you can parse it out but essentially i think we all know practically speaking it's kind of either like either you want us to do all these things to try to pull you back from the cliff's edge or that that being full code or dnr we're going to kind of just tend to your comfort that will be the thrust of our work it really is two choices essentially practically speaking and and, and inherently narrow so, and, and it's really also a, a phenomenon of the hospital. And of course, intensivists, you guys are in the hospital. It's not really outpatient intensive care. Um, so this is, so it's very narrow. It's specific to the hospital, generally speaking. Now, goals of care, that too, of course, is a little bit of a misnomer because goals of care is not just simply what are your goals. Uh, it's not that, it's not just what the words say there. So. Goals of care really is the idea that you, that you have conversations with patients and their families over time about their changing priorities. So as someone moves for like in a cancer diagnosis, you move from stage one or stage two where it's potentially curable and you're largely in the outpatient setting, but then as you move to the more advanced stages, you're more likely to be sick, you're more likely to land in the hospital, and as you move into stage four metastatic disease, that essentially for most cancers means it is not curable. And of course, there's a huge distinction there. So if something's not curable, we know this, right? I mean, back to the, the code status, if I have stage four lung cancer, you know, our defaults, you might, you might advocate that the defaults in the system for people with stage four cancer, that code status should be DNR because we know that the percent of people who are actually successfully revived and leave the hospital who have stage four disease is infinitesimally small, approaching zero. So anyway, that's a little bit of a tangent, but, but back to the goals of care, you know, th this, this is a conversation that happens over time where what you're really trying to do as a clinician, you are trying to ask questions, you're trying to evince 
your patient's personality, their values, their beliefs. It's entirely subjective. But the idea is if you know your patient very, very well and you know what they want and they are informed, well, then your role as a clinician is to help advocate for them and to link their goals with the intervention that suits those goals. Um, so goals of care is much larger. It's relevant inpatient, outpatient. Goals of care are expected to change over time as people move through a disease process. Um, and yeah, it is, it is a way, the, the, the idea of goals of care is to make sure that the, that, the, that the treatments we are prescribing and offering and giving link up to what the patient wishes for within the context of their illness. Uh, so yeah, sorry, I'm gonna start repeating myself. Does, does that make sense, Sergio? Does Absolutely. these big distinctions make sense? I think it's an important distinction for for several reasons. But the the reason why I wanted to make sure that we we expanded on that is that often I'll talk with a colleague or a young intensivist or a fellow when I was in uh, academia and ask about do we have a goals of care discussion? And the response is yes, they're full code or yes, they're DNR. Well, like you said, right? That's right part of it, but it's a very small part and narrow part of it. And there's a lot more The the other reason why I wanted to make sure that we talked about this BJ is that last month uh, in annals, I'm sorry, in uh, JAMA internal medicine, there's a fascinating study uh, that looked at um, a subgroup of, of patients from a large randomized study where they recorded conversations between the ICU team and the families and uh, really looking mm -hmm. at clinician family communication about patients values and preferences in intensive care unit. So goals of care, yep. and not surprisingly, the amount of discussion around what patients really value was minimal. The amount of discussion about integrating that into decisions about therapy was almost non-existent. So clearly, when yep. we study this, we're doing a very, very bad job in the ICU. Yeah. And, and and don't don't be too hard on yourselves. Uh, it's not just the ICU. Um, this is sort of medicine at large. And again, you guys are just sitting at the most sort of concentrated, intensive part of it. But yeah, this is this is a huge problem. And I'll, I'll just say, uh, and there's plenty to talk about here. But I'll just simply say, like, I, I this is where you start realizing that I think we have a design flaw in the system. Because obviously you, Sergio, and, and your colleagues care about patients' values and preferences. You care to be help actually delivering things to your patients that actually help them in ways that they feel helped, right? I mean, you, of course you guys want that. Um, but the whole orientation in healthcare for so long, especially in the ICU where sometimes your patients are non-communicative and there's so much technology at play, the orientation of our work is so much centered around our perspective as clinicians versus the patients. And you start, once you sort of get turned on to that distinction, you'll see it everywhere, including this, or this, this problem around goals of care. That whole purpose of goals of care is really to help shift the orientation into the patient's point of view, into the patient's perspective, because that is what we need to be serving. Yeah, absolutely, and I think that we, we talk all about patient-centered care, but the reality is that uh, from a design yeah. point, everything we do in medicine is designed around the providers and not the patients, especially the ICU. The, the whole idea of an exactly. ICU is That's around right. how do we provide care more efficiently, not how do we make a difference from a patient's perspective. 
in terms of what they really need. But I do think it's important Absolutely. because the other thing that you mentioned that uh, without diving further into, so we can go to another topic, was the DNR does not mean do not treat me. It just means if my heart exactly. stops, don't call a code. But I think that I often right. hear from colleagues uh, that they don't want to bring a patient to the ICU because they're DNR. Well, what does that mean? Right. right. I mean, there's plenty of things you can do in the ICU, sort of a code that might make a difference and might be aligned with what the patient values and what the patient's trying to achieve in terms of their goals of care. So I think that's a great exactly. distinction. Now, let me ask you one that I'm sure yeah, that, thank you. That, that really falls into your, into your domain because I, I hear it all the time when I suggest that maybe we should bring supportive medicine and palliative care. So palliative care versus hospice care. Mm. Okay, thank you. You're asking. I love your question. These are these are such these, these. I think so much pain gets perpetuated based on these sort of basic misunderstandings. So thank you. So, right. So hospice is a subtype of palliative care. So let's start with palliative care. I mean, there are there are definitions that are several paragraphs long. If you Google palliative care CMS, for example, you get a few paragraphs or the World Health Organization. So. It, it's it's a difficult thing to, to synopsize uh, really cl clearly, but basically palliative care is simply the interdisciplinary science of feeling as well as possible within the context of serious illness. So all our work is helping people within the context of their illness feel as well as can be. So sometimes palliative care is symptom management. Sometimes it's more psychological support. Sometimes it's just holding someone's hand and not abandoning them when they're, they're most vulnerable. You know, it, and, and it's absolutely irrespective of the clock. So nothing in the definition of palliative care tells you anything about their proximity to death. So if you were to come to my palliative care clinic at UCSF, you'd meet patients that are, I've been seeing for a dozen years who are nowhere near death, who may even be in remission but they're still struggling with symptoms or issues around their identity or whatever. So, so in palliative care, our call to arms is, is, is suffering, period. Uh, and so, so that's palliative care. Uh, hospice is a subtype of palliative care that is focused around the final months of life. So it is end of life care. It is the subset of palliative care that is designed for the end of life. Um, that, that's, that's the big distinction. The other thing to know about hospice is um, it, it, has, you know, it has several meanings uh, because since 1982, there has been a Medicare hospice benefit. There is an insurance classification and designation for who qualifies for hospice. There is no such designation for palliative care. It's wide open. But for hospice, you know, you need two doctors to say that the patient has six months or less to live. And you need that. And if someone's going to sign on to hospice, they also need to give up any curative intended uh, uh, efforts. So to go on to hospice, it is a real crossroads. So to, to go on to hospice, in other words, to on to the hospice benefit, uh, for that to be covered, you have to be dying soon, and you ha your your goals have to convert to comfort. Uh, it, it won't hospice will not pay for curative efforts. Yeah. So it's a real fork in the road, all right. And palliative care has no such fork in the road. And I palliative think, care works great. And, yeah, sorry. I was gonna on. I was gonna ask you 
because I think it's very important to, to distinguish this because on one hand, hospice is much more than my patient is going to be extubated. I'm going to stop the vasopressors and they're going to die in two hours. Right. And, right. and the literature right. would suggest from what I read, and I was going to ask you that for many patients, they probably will live longer in hospice than with, with, with active medical treatment and not only live longer, but better for those months that they have. And I think that in the ICU, <laughs> it's too late many times. But the other side of that discussion, yeah. which I think is very important, and I'm trying to convey to our, to our clinicians, is that you don't have to be dying to benefit from palliative care in the ICU. There is a hell lot exactly. of suffering in the ICU that can be alleviated with the right team. And I think that the role for palliative care got it. in the ICU is much broader, right? Absolutely. Huge, huge point. So, right, palliative care, like for, for starters, to, to your point, just to echo, both hospice and, and palliative care at large, there are mounting data to suggest that they actually can help you live longer. Because surprise, surprise, when you're less stressed out and living comfortably and living well and being heard and listened to and seen, well, you tend to feel better and you tend to live longer. So that, that, that used to be when I was in training, I don't know how many years ago, the, the, the thinking was, well, you can go on to hospice or palliative care. Uh, you won't, you'll, you, you'll get quality of life or you cannot go that route and live longer, but more miserably. So we now know that that's just that's total bogus. It doesn't, that's not true. If you want to live as long as possible, there's still a big role for hospice and palliative care in your life. Okay, so that, that's, that's one major, major point. Um, now, the second thing is, as you just said, so because palliative care doesn't require you to give up any other type of care, palliative care in a hospital setting is, is, a, is a consulting service. It's, it's an added layer of support that you intensivists would welcome into the mix when your patient or their family is really struggling, is really suffering. It's just you guys getting more help to help them feel well. And they'll probably live longer with palliative care involved. And then the palliative care team can also be a, con a source of continuity. So when it comes time for that person to transition out of the ICU, the palliative care team will follow them to the floor. And some programs can follow them on to home and be a source of continuity of care as well. So, so long story short, for intensivists, they're really, on paper, there should be zero downside and only upside to involving the palliative care team when your patient is really struggling. Absolutely. And I think that one of the aspects that uh, really we have just started talking about in critical care, BJ, uh, which is really the tip of the iceberg, is the uh, very serious effects that survivors of ICU have in terms of PTSD, in terms mm -hmm. of anxiety, cognitive dysfunction, physical impairment. So surviving a critical illness in the ICU can often become a chronic condition of suffering. And I, I, like you said, I think yeah. that allowing them to connect with the palliative care team early might help them tremendously down the road in alleviating that suffering once they're, they're able to leave the hospital. So I think it's a very important point that the ICU is slowly embracing, but we still have a lot of work to do with some of our colleagues in specialties and in the surgical field. But we'll, we'll keep pushing that, 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 that narrative. The, the, yes, let's let please. do it. The last one that I wanted to ask you about was this whole concept of withdrawal of care 
versus comfort measures. Mm. I just feel like my mm -hmm. heart my heart falls to the floor when I get a sign out and somebody says we're withdrawing care. What do you mean? We should never stop mm -hmm. caring. These patients need more care and these families need more care. Maybe there are better ways of talking about this. Oh, you're so good, Sergio. Yeah, amen. That's one of those, every time I hear that phrase, I just bristle. And there again, of course, your colleagues don't mean to stop caring, of course. But our language, you know, reveals some problems. And when we use that language, we send signals that are just not helpful to anybody. Uh, and so, yeah, I think that phrase should just be banished. I mean, there really should be no such thing as withdrawing care. I know what, you know, we know what people mean by that, um, but it's, it's, it's absolutely the wrong language and the wrong flavor. And God forbid a family hears us say that. Um, so, yeah, I couldn't agree with you more. So would you, would you, what, I can't remember the phrase you well, were. So comfort measures yeah. only or compassionate extubation. Are, are there better ways of mm -hmm. connoting what we're trying to do? Because I do think that what we say conditions behavior in a subliminal way, right? So if I get a sign out, we're withdrawing care. Absolutely. That patient falls off my, my radar in terms of visiting in my, my first round around the ICU that night, right? So what would be yeah. terms that yep. you, would, you would suggest, BJ? Well, so I think you're, I think the, let's start with like what we're trying to convey, I think, is that you as intensivists are, are gonna, you're just, it's just moving the mode of sort of the, like your intensive efforts will move from intensively trying to help per, like this person survive. And you're gonna move from that goal to our intensive effort is to help them eke out some comfort. So, you know, when I was a fellow, to, to, to make this point that, that it doesn't mean less care, we started using this phrase, intensive comfort measures, <laughs> you know, because it keeps the word intensive in there and says, hey, okay, no, no, we're not, we're not going to sleep here. We're going to stay, you know, we're going to stay vigilant and we're just, instead of reaching for our, you know, our fancy machine, we're going to maybe reach more liberally for the fentanyl or, or whatever it is. But the idea is, it's just stay intensively involved, stay caring. It's just your your goal is moving to from survivor from survival to comfort. That's that's the only distinction. So I, I like this intensive comfort measures. I, I like I that a lot. Actually, right I've never used that word, but I will actually. I like that. And it even has an acronym, so that's that's perfect. ICM. Yeah. <laughs> I love mm -hmm. it. So you you obviously, I mean, have 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 cared for many, many patients at the end of their lives. You have a lot of experience. I mean, I think a lot of the, the premise of the TED Talk you gave several years ago in terms of redesigning the experience is based on that experience. But what do patients really want at the end of life? Or what do families really want at the end of life when it's in the ICU? Could you share some of your thoughts along those, uh, those topics with us? Yeah, I mean, of course it varies, and a part of the trick to this kind of work is you, you know, you especially as intensivists, you have to kind of, you have to grok. You're, you're moving from a much more sort of objective mode of operating to a much more subjective one, and I think that's why it gets so tricky because because in this subjective realm, you know, your patients have a different kind of power they have more power. They're the ones who tell you what's important to them. They're the ones who get, to, who have to feel what we're doing to them. Versus there's sort of the objective, more science side, like we doctors are the experts. The patients are a much more passive vessel 
receiving our expertise. But when you move into sort of preferences, it, that flips the power dynamic. And I say that just to sort of name why it can feel kind of clunky and, and odd and strangely difficult sometimes and kind of vague, because it is. Um, so, so one is to just, I think for your listeners, you just have to kind of cop. You're moving from a moment where an objective zone where you know more than the patient to a subjective mode where the patient and their families know more than you do. And that's tricky. So just to call it out. Um, but looking for themes, um, you know, I think most people at the end of life are uh, concerned for their families and their loved ones. So you'll see a lot of folks who are in their final moments when they realize death is coming, much of their worries will be to about their family. So sometimes the best, the best thing you can do for your patient may be to spend a little time with their family and to, Hey, let that patient know, say, Hey, I'm going to sit with your family. We're going to talk, we're going to talk things through and I'm going to be there for your family. Even if you're asleep or even after you die, I want you to know, I'm going to be, I'm going to be helping your family too. I'm going to be making sure they get the attention they deserve or something like that. If you can impart that to your patients that you're going to care about them essentially, even after they're gone, even for a moment, you're going to look after their family. That's a huge, that's a beautiful gift to them. And that will help bring down their, their anxiety. That's a big one. Uh, a second one, of course, is really around the basics of symptom management. Uh, most people are not interested in uh, suffering uh, physically at the end of life. So getting really, really good with your opiates and your benzos and how to help people uh, suffer less from a sort of a medication point of view. Uh, that's something that you guys can do well yourselves, and that's something that palliative care, your palliative care colleagues might also be able to help you with. Um, so that's huge, of course, too. And then, of course, you know, most Americans identify, yeah, we're a secularizing society, but most, of, uh, most Americans still do identify as religious, and many of those who don't identify as religious will identify as spiritual. So one way or another, and especially at the end of life, right, I mean, this is where You've got to realize your patients are, you know, approaching the, the, the horizon, you know, the, the abyss. And that is, can be a terrifying notion. I mean, we are wired to run away from death. I mean, look, the ICU is born of this impulse to do everything we can to keep death at bay. But when it's coming, you know, your patients are going to be stand, staring at a huge abyss. And so sometimes the the intervention is is to bring in their chaplain or to ask them hey you know do you have this is uh, do you have uh, um do you have a, a pastor that you love to speak with or someone from the outside that i can call and invite in to come see you or would you like to see our chaplain or whatever it is uh, some connection to their spiritual life can be hugely helpful and tends to be a very important piece of the puzzle for patients and families and this is where I think uh, this is where, you, you know, you and ICU docs, you got plenty to worry about. Um, so you don't need to you don't need to play priest yourself. But what can be very helpful is is, is linking people to chaplains and other uh, spiritual resources. So that, that that's huge. Um, and I, lastly, it's sort of related is this the power of you know bearing witness. It's a spiritual notion, but it's also a, a humanitarian notion. And I think of it for most of us in our own life, 
you know, maybe you've had an experience, Sergio, where you can remember, you know, someone, uh, uh, someone somewhere who, who just sees you for who you are, warts and all, isn't trying to fix you. Because, it, you know, when you're trying to fix someone, you're implying they're broken. And even when someone's body may be broken, their spirit or their persona doesn't, isn't necessarily broken. Um, you know, and you can, you can do so much for someone by just, by a little touch. Maybe it's holding the hand. Maybe it's eye contact. Maybe it's holding silence for a moment. It doesn't have to be a big thing. Or maybe just sitting down and, 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 and sit, sharing a moment of silence and witnessing someone, seeing that person, not judging them, dropping your concerns about the future or about work just for a moment. That is one of the most healing kind of modes I've ever come across. And it ain't fancy and it doesn't take a lot of time. It just takes some courage on your part to just sit there for a second and see the person, even maybe even love them. Um, that, that's, that's, that's huge. And then, uh, I mean, but we could talk, talk for hours on this, but I think you already named a big one is just acknowledging uh, that what happens in an ICU tends to be is, is, is traumatic. Obviously what lands people in the ICU can be traumatic, but the experience in the ICU itself can be traumatic and understanding what trauma does to a nervous system, either the patients or their families, just being sensitized to how they're going to walk away from this experience uh, is, is really powerful. So sometimes that simply means maybe a little extra effort in the room to make it look like anything but a hospital room. Maybe it is at the end of life, you do take a little extra moment to clean up the, the, the patient's body, to remove the tubes or to cover them up. But something, and this will be my final, I, I'm rambling here, but the, my final point is some way, you know, of depathologizing the scene. You know, you guys are so, you're dealing with so much stuff and so, so much pathology. But remember, that's our word. That's our notion. That's still a human being in there, and they still are trying to feel like a human being. So after we've pathologized our patients, however we can, um, however we can sort of remember at the end to depathologize them and return them to a basic human being, that helps them, that helps the families, and it also will help, help you guys not burn out. Yeah. And I think it, it, if you if you get to the root of it, compassion is really recognizing everything that you have and you feel in another person and uh, feeling their pain, but also figuring out the things that would help you, would help them and taking that moment. And, and I think that one of the things that I always find fascinating, BJ, is that we are not very good human beings in, in general and being very rational. Even when we have proof of things, we kind of forget. And the two paradoxes mm -hmm. that I've always been fascinated by in, in my professional life as an ICU doctor is, A, we spend all our energy and, and, and intellect in avoiding death. Yet, as far as I could check, since we've recorded time, it, mortality remains at 100% for everybody. <laughs> Right. That's right. And two. That's right. Yep. And, and the second thing is that often every intensivist will recognize, even though they forget it, that it's often family members of patients who died who are the most grateful of our care. And it's probably because they yep. don't remember what you said. They don't remember what you knew, but they remember how you made them feel at that moment. And that is very powerful. And I think that that's a, something that we should remind ourselves and I think speaks to what you were identifying as things that matter. 
Yeah. Amen, Sergio. And, and again, I want to be really careful with your listeners and, and for both of our sakes too, is because we're all so darn busy. And I don't want any of this to feel like yet another thing on your very long to-do list. Um, it's more of sort of a spirit of, of, that you bring with you to your work. It's more in an attitude, in your, your, your demeanor. Maybe it is how you, again, hold silence, or maybe how it is you ask an open-ended question, like, hey, how are you doing today, Mr. Jones, or whatever. You know, these very relatively, a hand on the shoulder, you know, sometimes a hug, or sometimes, guess some of the most powerful experiences I've ever had or witnessed is when a physician actually cries with the family. Obviously, you can't stage that, but if you find yourself welling up, that is not a problem. That is not a failing. That is not a weakness. That is a very human moment, and patients and families will love you only more if they've seen that you are actually moved by this thing that they're going through. That is a stunning, and, and of course, that's just good for you, too, so you don't stay all bottled up. And I think that genuine respect and compassion should not take a lot of time. I think we're all like, have a long to-do list, we feel we're busy, but the reality is that having a, like you said, humane and compassionate moment is not gonna put you behind in your day or in your shift, and it will make mm -hmm. a huge difference for that family. And that's why I, I'm so upset with the withdrawal of care, because I think that the more you visit these families who are, for patients who are dying and getting comfort measures, even if it's just for a couple of minutes and making sure they're comfortable and checking on the family, probably makes a big difference. It definitely makes a big difference. And remember too, I mean, these, these final, especially at the very end of life, when we're talking about the death moment in the ICU, you know, these, the imagery is going to be, is part of what it can be part of the sort of re-traumatizing memory for family members. Now, so, so it's, it's loaded. So the, 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 the potential to do harm, in those moments is, is great. You can accidentally set families up to feel even worse uh, about the death of their loved one. Um, but looked at it from a different angle, you have so much power to affect that. So if the final imagery when the patient dies and the final imagery is you guys, the nurses, maybe the the MAs, the folks at the desk, anyone, you know, you can ritualize this. And maybe everyone gathers around the bed and just holds a moment of silence. And then, you know, then circle back for a minute and check on that family. You do that, and the, what they're, the final imagery for that family, when they look back on this, is not going to be wincing uh, trauma response. It's going to be, oh, my Lord, what a beautiful human moment that was. And that sets your families up to have a wholly different experience with grief, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And, and you will feel different too. And there again, it ain't much. It's just a simple kind of human moment at the end. But just, just keep in mind that that imagery, more than the things you say, that imagery, the feel is what's going to be seared into families. And you, and you can do a lot to just humanize that. I think it's like the power of, of a moment, right? It doesn't have to be long, but the power of that moment is what really yeah. transcends. And, and when these uh, images are revisited in the future, it's much nicer to have that than a bloody room where people are doing CPR and, and what we usually see in the, in the ICU. Exactly. Absolutely. So yeah. what about, I always talk about time as being the great equalizer, but often I find that in the ICU, 
it's a little bit different maybe when you have a long relationship with a patient in palliative care, but a lot of times it seems that the patient, whether they're intubated or trying to talk with us, there's all the signals that they're really ready to die and the family's not ready. And the fa and, and yeah. a lot of times this creates a lot of conflict. Obviously, this is another situation where I think supportive medicine and palliative care can be very helpful as a mirror to the family in terms of trying to identify what the patient would really want. But any any suggestions or, 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 or tips that you could give us in the, when we have these misalignments? Yeah, boy, it's really hard. It's so darn hard, especially if you have a non-communicative patient who can't really chime in. Uh, and sometimes you're left with an advanced directive that seems to be in conflict with the family or within the family, there are competing voices. Uh, you know, it's just so, uh, it's so easy for for this to get tricky <laughs> just because human communication is tricky, period. So, I mean, I think one thing we have to remember, I've seen, I've been involved with it too, where you have a non-responsive patient who may have stated their wishes, you know, for for comfort measures, for example. But, you know, they're intubated, not making a noise, not speaking up, and you have a, a spouse or a close family member, you know, pleading with you to do the next thing, to try the next thing to help them live longer. And boy, is that a difficult moment. You have a, you have a quiet patient who can't really speak for themselves, even though they kind of did an advanced directive. But you've got this poor living, breathing person in front of you pleading with you. And it's very natural, very human to say, okay, well, I'll go with the family members, please, because she's in my face right now and I, I need to respond. I can't just let them die. Um, well, yeah, you can. I mean, I think what's going to start happening in here is it used to be, I think, that from a legal point of view, a lot of things were done in a hospital from a sort of a CYA point of view, cover your tush. Yeah. Um, like I have to, I have to intubate. I have to give pressures. I have to do all these things, even though I know it's not going to work because if I don't, I'll get sued. I need, the family needs to, it has to have the appearance that I quote did everything. And of course, what a monumental waste of resources, time. And then you set up this charade of care or like a soft code, for example. You know, we need to be more courageous than that. And the courage is to say, I'm so sorry, you know, I can't do that either because they stated their wishes or because I know it's futile and I'll only be making your loved one hurt more. I want, and I'm going to be here. I'm going to make sure they're as comfortable as can be. And I will hold your hand all the way through it. But I know you and I, Mrs. Jones, I know you and I both, neither of us wants your husband to suffer more than he has to. And so because of that, I'm not going to, I'm not going to give him presses or blah, blah, blah. Um, but I'm not going to run away either. It's sort of like, yeah. you need to hold the line. You're the professional. You're the one who knows you need to hold that line. Don't, don't, you don't, you don't need to shy away from the things that you know to be true. And even when that family member is pleading with you to do differently, what they're really pleading with you is they're really pleading with God, you know, they're, and they're pleading with you you're just a, a you're you're someone who they're venting to so you don't necessarily take them literally you just hear their pain in their pleas you do what you know to be right but then you tend to the suffering of that family member that's what they really need they don't need you to follow their orders as much as they need you to hear them and and, and be there for them does that make sense sergio it does and i think it's a great lead way to uh, my next question which really relates to uh, how we should 
talk with patient families in the ICU in a better way in terms of goals of care, because I think that too often we are asking the wrong questions. We're asking them, what do you want me to do from a medical perspective? And my sense is that we should be asking, what does the, the patient or their loved one value? And in the context of what's going on, exactly. what are the, what would this mean for their future? Could you, and I think that one of the things that I've always admired, obviously, from, from the professionals, the, from the palliative care team, is that you never go into a family discussion without a game plan. You have a framework that you use, right? It, you're much better at, at, at mm -hmm. listening, at asking the right questions. And I think that a lot of times that is missing because of our training. And, and people who are not in that field. Could you just give yeah. us maybe some tips or some actionable items in terms of conducting better uh, discussions with family members in the ICU when perhaps palliative care is not available? Yeah, so, you know, and it tends to be, you know, not fancy stuff. It tends to be, the, again, the, 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 the idea of not running away, sort of being able to sit with suffering that you can't fix, uh, knowing how to exercise the compassion that you feel, you know, it's not exotic stuff. I mean, and there are training modules. I mean, like I should mention things like Vital Talk is a really great communication course that's geared towards clinicians, especially physicians. You know, so you can augment your training uh, with other things. I, I would really encourage folks to consider things like Vital Talk. So you can go acquire sort of communication skills. But meanwhile, I think just remembering that this is, you're, in these moments, you're, you're doing things, you're, you're working on two levels. You're working as an expert technician and you're working as a fellow human being. And you need to kind of, you need to learn to toggle between the two. So as a technician, it makes no sense to say to our patients, hey, do you want us to, uh, you know, do you want us to do, well, first of all, do you want us to do everything? It's, it's just about the worst thing you could say. Like, of course I want you to do everything to, to help my mother. Um, so, you know, that's just a non-starter question. But don't feel the need to ask, do you want chest compressions? Do you don't feel the need to do the Chinese menu thing? You're the expert. Like, you don't go, to, you don't take your car in that's not working, and the mechanic doesn't turn to you and say, hey, well, would you like me to, I don't know, fix your air conditioning, even though the problem is your, <laughs> is your radiator? <laughs> like, no. Like, you know that for a patient who's dying no matter what, that intubation, for example, is the wrong tool. It's not going to help them. And when you know that, you shouldn't offer it. You don't, need to ask, you don't need to hear your patient say, no, doctor, I do not want intubation. Instead, you need to say, hey, what's the most important thing to your, to, to your loved one here? You know, have you guys talked about what the end of life might look like? You know, is, is comfort really, is, is comfort, has your husband or wife ever said anything about, about their attitude towards suffering or, or comfort? You know, what do you think is most important to your husband now? These kinds of sort of value-based questions will get you a, get a sense of who this person is. You know, some people say, well, my husband's a fighter. He'll want to go down swinging. You know, I get that phrase. And that, then, hey, even if I know it's likely futile, I might say, suggest full code because for that person, they need to know that they want, they, they are, there's something in the fight for them. But most people don't have that. So, you know, again, you just need to ask them uh, about their values towards suffering, towards comfort. Have they talked about death? They talked about what's, where they want to be when they die. I don't know. Things like this sort of value-based thing. These are so situation-dependent. 
but don't you do not need to ask them whether they want specific interventions you're the expert that's your job um does, does that make sense on the yeah, technical side and i think it's very important because it's very interesting to me to find that some of my colleagues have no problem when a surgeon comes and says and somebody who's on three pressors and on 100% oxygen saying, well, I really can't take him to the OR, it would be futile. Yet we yeah. seem to not equate that that's one type of medical therapy. And maybe futility applies to many others that we do in the ICU as well, like initiating dialysis in somebody who already has five uh, failing organs and is on three vasopressors. Exactly. Or, or, or doing or their heart stops when they're getting uh, liters of, of epinephrine to do a code and give them a milligram of epinephrine per ACLS. These things are things I right. think that sometimes escapes patients and be very clear. The other thing that, that I wanted to ask you about, um, DJ, which I think is also missing in a lot of our conversations is clarity about death, using that word specifically. Yeah. I think that too often yep. I've seen that they, they say the big problem with communication is the illusion that it has occurred, right? And if we don't say very yeah. clearly what's gonna happen, then the patient family says, well, I didn't know he was gonna die. What do you mean? We talked about that. So yeah. any, any suggestions there? Yeah, a couple. So one is, and there's a, there's a cultural overlay here too that, you, that we all need to be sensitive to and we need to be humble before because, you know, language and body language, tradition, idioms, they're, you know, they're specific to individuals and groups of people. And um, so it's, 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 it's really tricky, but I would say as a rule, uh, you just need to dare to say death. You know, it's it's usually our problem. We're the ones who are more afraid of it oftentimes, I think, than our patients and our family members. Um, so often I've watched all this dancing around the patient happen and no one and people using only euphemisms. And and then finally a pout of care guy will come up or, or someone else will get, dare to say something about death. And that's received as a great relief. Because on some level, oftentimes patients and families too know that that's probably coming. And when someone finally dares to mention that possibility, it's like, oh, thank God. Okay, I'm on the same planet with this person. So, so, so you know, and of course it can go, it can be terrifying too to be, to mention death. And sometimes families will fall apart when you do. But that's okay. A family member or a patient emotionally falling apart in the ICU should be considered normal you know that's that's not a failing that that's nothing to try you don't go to too many too great lengths to avoid that 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 is normal human stuff playing out and that's what you want so so don't try to like so, sorrow uh, tears these are not the enemy uh dishonesty or f false realities uh, wasting people's time that, that that that's the real enemy um so dare to say death you know, for example, back to your last question, Sergio, a great code conversation can, is, I've heard uh, one of my teachers did this, and he sat on the edge of the bed with a patient and said, you know, have you ever thought about, you know, have you ever really given thought to the end of your life? You know, and, you know, you might, you might preamble around, you know, it depends on your relationship, but, you know, you might ease into it by a general conversation about mortality or the human condition. But essentially, you could say, you know, have you ever thought about, what you would want when you when it's your time when not if you die but you know when you die we're all going to die so quit saying if it's to say when right. you die have you thought about what how you'd want to be treated at that moment 
that's a great way to get into the code conversation. And now most people say, well, yeah, I just, if it's really common, I just want to be comfortable, you know, and I don't want a bunch of machines. I just want to be comfortable. Most people say it when asked that way. It's a very different question than saying, hey, do you want us to try to bring you back? Or do you want us to, do you want us to do everything? Or do you want to live? <laughs> yeah, we, we all that's do. A, those are, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, most, most of us do. So anyway, so dare to use the D word. Just don't load it up yourself. Just you, you're, you're going to project your own fears on the patients is the bigger risk than they're going to be freaked out by you using the D word. And talk about it as a normal piece of the puzzle, not a failing. Yeah. You know, little subtle things, again, like when you die, not if. That, that kind of stuff sends really powerful signals. Uh, that, that sound, sound right to you, Sergio? It, it does. And I think that in my experience also, a lot of times when we have conversations with families, which is more common in our, in our world, uh, saying very clearly, your mother is dying, right? Yep. It, it, yeah. Despite what yep. we're doing right now, she's actively dying, right? Uh, just saying that out yep. and explaining how you can make that more natural, more peaceful, surrounded by people who love her. Is, is another way to get into that conversation. And instead of saying, would you want us to do CPR? And a lot of times you might, as you go in that conversation say, because she's already getting all the medications I would use if her heart stops, if her heart stops, we will let her go peacefully. And I think it's a different conversation because like you said, we are the experts on the medical part, just getting the family on the same page and understanding what is actually happening. That's right. That's right. And you can say things, you can soften it because the truth is right. I mean, it's hard to call futility because, you know, maybe something has a 5% chance of working or a 10% chance. So it's unlikely, but is that really futile or, you know, it's, it's a tough line to call. So you can, you can soften it and say like, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm really worried. Like when you put it on yourself, this tends to work well. I, I clinician, I physician, I am, I'm really worried. That your mom, that, that that your mom's not responding to this, that, or the other thing. And I'm really concerned that death may be close, or I may, I'm, I'm really worried that she's dying soon. And then, so that first of all, you conveyed that you care, like you you have concerns, you have feelings of your own, and you're also conveying that you want to help. You know, you're not you're not punting. You're going to stay there and deal with this. And uh. And once you're in that mode, then you can also say, you know, and, and if I'm wrong, hey, I'll be, we'll celebrate together, you know, or I often hear myself saying like, and just so you know, I, I'm not going to get in the way of any miracles. I really want your mom to survive too. I'm just, I just, I'm concerned that that's not going to be possible, but I promise you we're going to do, we're going to keep our eyes open and we're going to see if there's anything to push back on, or I'm not going to get in the way of a miracle. I promise little things like that, just a slight hedge to make it clear to your families that, that your, your eyes are open, you're still caring and sure, maybe you're wrong. You just, you know, that even if you know, you're not, yeah. that, that little humility that, that can send a really sweet signal to the family. Yeah. And I think, and I think that's a powerful message. And I think the other thing I want to just reiterate, because for me, it was a very powerful uh, insight is when we have the opportunity to talk with patients themselves in the ICU is reassuring them that we will care for their family once they're, they're gone. Really making yeah. sure that they know yeah. that I think that's very powerful. And I never thought about it that way, BJ. So thanks for sharing that with us. But I think it's something that we do have the opportunity 
it might be very reassuring for them as well in terms of, yes, we will be here for your family. We will be here, I mean, to, to, to help them during that time. So I think that we yeah. could go Amen. on. Yeah. We could go on for hours here, but I do think that I, I want to be respectful for your time, uh, and I wanted to close with some questions not related to uh, uh, to, to palliative care and to end of life issues. Would that be okay, BJ? Sure. Yeah. Yep. So uh, I always ask our guests about books, but before I ask you about books, I, I do want to ask you about your book. And I understand that you are, are publishing a, a book entitled uh, The Beginner's Guide to the End, Practical Advice for Living Life and Facing Death. Could you share us with us a little bit about that book? Yeah, yep. It's uh, Simon & Schuster publishing it. It comes out, I think, July 16th. Um, you know, and it's exactly as it sounds, A Beginner's Guide to the End. It is meant, it's meant for the public. Uh, it's it's, it's a sort of a generalist book. And it is, it's a guidebook. So we cover uh, everything from, you know, how to, you know, receiving a diagnosis, communicating the news to others, how to talk with your doctor, uh, how to navigate the hospital, tips for sort of how to get through the hospital at least with the least amount of trauma. Um, and then it has a chapter on sort of basics of symptom management. It has uh, chapters on grief. And chapters also for the family members around, you know, how to write a eulogy or what's the difference between a funeral home and a mortuary, you know. So it's really soup to nuts, a general guide to all the issues that come up around the end of life uh, and, all, and, and meant to contextualize it. So medicine is a big piece of that puzzle, but I think it's important for all of us to remember that the dying is not just a medical event. The medicine is a big piece of it. But in the end, this is very much a, a human and spiritual event, not simply medical. And, and that book tries to kind of map that territory out a little bit. Yeah. Um, so we'll definitely add that to the show links. I also will add some of the articles that we mentioned. And I think that the, um, the vital talk uh, course sounds like something that I, we should look into and maybe share with our clinicians as well. So the, the question I have related other books is, uh, is there a book or books that have influenced you significantly or a book that you have gifted uh, often to others you know there's there's not not a, there's not a, a book per se but a, a few of them that i think are really good whether you're coming at this from a professional or personal angle uh, as a clinician or whatever else uh, victor frankl's man's search for meaning is sort of a classic uh, in the palliative care field um, and I think it's a short and easy read and very compelling and can help you. I think one of the things for all of us to do is I think part of our homework, even if your job, even if your desire, Sergio, is to be the best intensivist in the world, uh, you know, your homework to that end is for you to deal with your own mortality. For you, I think probably, I'm surprised I didn't say this earlier, like the, the most important thing for any of us to do is for us to deal with our own lives and deal with our own fears and to come to terms with the fact that our time is limited too. Because if you, if you have grokked those things in your own life, your affect will be different. You'll be more able to sit with patients who are themselves in that zone. So I think that's actually the most important anything that any of us can do. So Man's Search for Meaning is a good book to help you get there. Um, 
Michael Carney, spelled K-E-A-R-N-E-Y. He's an Irish palliative care doc and an author. Uh, he's an amazing dude. He now works in Santa Barbara. I happened to got lucky enough to work with him. He, he's also, he's written several books. I like mortally wounded and that kind of gets us back into this sort of shared human thing of, of being uh, mortals ourselves. Um, I think mortally wounded is a wonderful read for your listeners. And then I think any of the, exist, any of the existentialists, uh, Kierkegaard, Heidegger, in particular, write about subject matter of mortality very, very nicely. Uh, Mortally Wounded by Atul Gawande. And then I think a, and the last thing I'll mention is if you're particularly interested from a sort of social science point of view, the cultural anthropologist Ernest Becker's book, mm-hmm. uh, The Denial of Death, from I think 1974 is a fascinating read. Not an uh, easy one though. So, yeah, there you <laughs> Be warned, nope, right? Not no, an easy one. <laughs> no, that's right, but boy, is it fascinating. Yeah. And it just all these books will help explore, you know, this thing that to us as clinicians that can be so, the, the, the problem that sort of reductive science is that we reduce life to a heartbeat. Um, and in fact, life's way more mysterious than that, way more interesting than that, way more subjective than that. So all these books will basically help you explore this really tricky terrain and, and expand it in your mind rather than overly reduce it. Absolutely. And I do think that there is a, the reason why we always ask this question is that I think that innovation is usually taking ideas from other, other worlds and bringing it to the ICU. And clearly there's a lot to learn from what other people have thought in the past or looked at in different situations. And all these books, I think, uh, have uh, really, really exemplified uh, the, uh, this. I have not read any book from Michael Kearney, but definitely, I mean, Victor Frankl and, and Ernest Becker are, are books that I highly recommend. So we'll include that as well in the show notes. The The second question, yeah. the second question, BJ, relates to what do you believe to be true in medicine or life that most other people don't believe? <laughs> oh, that's a good one. You know, um, <laughs> I'm tempted to slightly cheekily answer that question by saying, uh, I believe that we die <laughs> because you can, especially you can get the feeling in an ICU setting that death is kind of optional that, or, or, or a death is a, a, some sort of a failing rather than the most normal thing that has ever been. Um, so I mean, one answer to that question would be like, I, I happen to believe that we all actually die. And I, I like to treat my life accordingly. And I think that that's, that's very, very, very powerful. And I think it fits very well because most people, whether they believe or, not, or don't, that they will die, they don't act like they will the way they live. And I think that's the difference, right? You have recognized that and have really tried to live your life according to that. Well, you know, Sergio, that reminds me, man, this is so, there's so much to talk about. I, like you're, you're, that's, that's, that's really, really important point. And just as you put it, and I guess I also, it's an excuse to also say to your listeners, you know, you can do everything right. You can say just the right words. You can put your hand on the shoulder at just the right moment. You know, you can frame everything just so. And death can still be just hard as hell. And and the experience may just simply be a, uh, a, a misery for a patient and their family, you know, no matter what you do. So one thing to just get across is like, yes, we all need to do our part. 
and part of doing our part is realizing that we can't control everything and 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 families are still going to suffer and still struggle no matter what we do and i i think that's so important for us all to remember so at the end of the day we don't accidentally feel horrible for not working a miracle and so that's the idea of this normalizing death is for our, ourselves our own protection and our patients but um it's still going to be hard and very often the the problem is that patients and families that people ourselves included we don't turn our attention to this fact of death until it's so late in the game and then you realize oh shit my time was that if i really realized how precious time was i would have spent it differently and the, the the risk is that because we don't pay attention to this part of reality we get to the end of our lives too late to realize just how precious it was in the first place too late to appreciate it in ways that we could have. And then we're left with a steaming pile of regrets. And that's not something that you're necessarily gonna fix in the ICU. So just, so try to minimize your own regrets in your own life by turning your attention to death. And just remember that not everyone has done that homework and you may be bumping into misery at the end of life, but there's just nothing you can do about it. And I think that to, to that point, BJ, um, one of my mantras, I mean, if, you, if, if I call it a mantra, but a phrase that I, I think about very regularly is one that was coined by the Stoics, memento morum, which means that remember you will die. And I think it really guides you in terms of not only what you do, but the things that you give value to. Is this really something that is important for me in the future or should I just let it slide, right? Is this something that I want to spend yeah. my time with? And I think that it's a very powerful reminder and I think it fits very well because most people act as if they're not going to die and I think that's a problem. <laughs> Amen. I think it's so true. And, I, you know, Lester, you know, I think one of the secrets is, and it sounds like you've learned this secret, Sergio, is, you know, a lot of times people will learn I, I do some hospice end-of-life work and say, gosh, isn't that just depressing? Aren't you just miserable all the time? And I say, well, yeah, you know, it's hard. And yeah, it's, 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 there's sorrow in there for sure. But for myself and most of my colleagues, thanks to our sort of inborn professional memento mori, you know, you kind of find yourself with a sort of lightness and a joy in life because you are so appreciative of the moments you actually get to feel good and actually the moments you're free because you just don't take them for granted. So, so, so turning your attention this direction as you're doing, Sergio, and you're helping your listeners do, the payoff is huge for you personally and, and professionally. You're much more likely to see the beauty in life once you realize just how precious it is. And the last question is, what would you want every intensivist who's listening to us to know? Could be. Well, yeah, you know, I think we kind of, we covered a lot today, Sergio. I guess I, I mentioned this one. I'll just, this is, this is, I think, is uh, I will end on this reminder that, you know, in the ICU, you know how you divide like your node and how you present patients and you divide people up by, by organ system, et cetera. And again, this idea that, you know, that, that an ICU is sort of the, the least natural place on the planet. And, and just reminding yourself, no matter how much time you spend in that environment yourself, no matter how normal the ICU has become to you, just remember that pathology and thinking about people by organ system, that these are conventions. These are not reality. These are little tricks that we use rhetorically and otherwise to help us students of life to, to, to grasp reality. They're, 
they're, they're, so I guess the tip is don't confuse your conventions with the reality that the conventions are trying to help you uh, digest. So don't forget to depathologize your patient at the end of the day. Don't forget to um, put them back together again once you've divvied them up by organ system. Um, don't confuse your conventions with the reality they're meant to help you understand. And I think that that's a great place to stop. I really appreciate your time, BJ. It was a fascinating discussion. Would love to have you back again. There's so much we can talk about. But again, I think this would be very helpful for our audience and for people working in the ICU. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you, Sergio. I'm so glad you're doing this. I think we can all we can all benefit from talking about this subject more. And the work you guys do is so, well, pun, in, pun intended, is so critical. So thanks for taking the time to care so much. I really appreciate it. Thank you for listening to Critical Matters, a sound podcast. Make sure to subscribe to Critical Matters on Apple or Google Podcasts and share with your network. Sound's transforming the way critical care is provided in hospitals across the country. To learn more, visit www.soundphysicians.com.